0: The normality in our society is that people are disconnected from who they are. The consumer culture and the culture of people influencing each other, it's all part of a culture of disconnection. The reason so many people are suffering physical and mental illness, it all comes from this disconnection from our nature. These so-called mentally ill behaviors, they all serve a function. Dealing with the trauma that has not been addressed. Are we aware, are we conscious, are we making deliberate choices or are we driven by unconscious pain? Which kind of pain would you rather be in? The pain of self-suppression or the pain of losing some attachments.
1: Do you see a divine design within our wounding?
0: There's something about our nature. There's a kind of intelligence in it that wants us to be authentic to ourselves. People need freedom. Freedom politically, freedom economically, freedom socially, freedom from their unconscious emotions so they can be themselves. And that's, I think, the essential endeavor of all the great work that has been done in the world is the desire for freedom.
1: beautiful humans, welcome back to the Know Thyself podcast, where every single week we get the honor and privilege to sit down with a brilliant mind and open heart to see how we can learn more about ourselves and the world around us. Today is part two of an incredible conversation and dialogue that is very needed right now on the planet. My guest today is Dr. Gabor Mate. Um, as you may know, he is an expert on a range of topics and has been speaking and writing books for many years on stress, addiction, childhood development the implications of trauma on culture. And he's written multiple best-selling books, such as In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, When the Body Says No, Scattered Minds, just to name a few. And his new book, The Myth of Normal, which I absolutely adore and is available now that you can all go check out in the link below in the description, is is bringing up a very uh, timely subject for our species as a humanity and where we are and how we got to the point where we are now, how disconnected we've become with nature. Um, So again, last night we had a live community kind of podcast and the conversation was really beautiful. Everyone was so touched. Thank Mm -hmm. you for coming in the studio to do a follow up.
0: Well, it's great to be back again.
1: Yeah, so good. So I thought we'd just start, because I really love this quote in the beginning of the book, uh, which is from Eric Fromm. And it says, the fact that millions of people share the same vices does not make these vices virtues the fact that they share so many errors does not make the errors to be truths. And the fact that millions of people share the same forms of mental pathology does not make these people sane. Yeah, I think it's a beautiful way to open up our dialogue today because, and, and if you would share your overview of how unnatural our normalized society has become.
0: The um, quote is from Eric Fromm, uh, who was a great, um, psychologist in the first half of the 20th century, originally from Germany and settled in the United States, he wrote a book um, around the mid-century called The Sane Society, which already he was pointing out, this is three quarters of a century ago now. He was already pointing out that in the most advanced societies, there's a greater um, preponderance of mental illness. And so when you said in your introduction, Andre, that I wrote this book about our disconnection from nature, it's primarily about a disconnection from our own nature as human beings. And the normality in our society is, is that people are disconnected from who they are. And the consumer culture and the culture of fame and the culture of um, momentary attention and the culture of um, people influencing each other in engaging in totally meaningless activities That's our part of a culture of disconnection. And so that the reason so many people are suffering physical and mental illness, I mean, 70% of American adults are taking at least one medication. 70%. So on the one hand, we have this richest society in the history of the world. On the other hand, you have a large percentage of the population who have health issues of mind or body or both. It all comes from this disconnection from our nature. And so that's the biggest normality, quote unquote, of our culture. And and, and so when Fromm says that just because a whole lot of people buy into something, that doesn't make it normal or sane. Basically, they have taken that and updated it to our present time. But I'm riffing on the themes that he raised all those years ago.
1: Yeah. And you in this book so eloquently dive into all the different ways in which toxicity has become normalized in the far reaching uh, corners of our culture. And you you also share, I love that, you know, in Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, yeah. individuals are so conditioned that they practically can't help behaving as they ought to behave.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and you give these character traits that I think are really beautiful that I'll kind of just briefly mention here because it's very descriptive of the place that we've gotten to individually and collectively. So you give three. The first character trait is separation from self. And I'll just read a quote here. In an image-mad culture that sustains itself in large part by making people feel inadequate about themselves or more insidiously capitalizing on these pre-existing feelings, the media holds out ideals of physical perfection against which young and old measure themselves and which lead people to be ashamed of their very bodies. And that is descriptive to the separation from self, the character trait. Um, number one. The second one is the character trait of consumption hunger. Yeah. And just briefly, I uh, love this, this part here, you say what the advertisers need to know is not what is right about the product, but what is wrong about the buyer. Yeah.
0: yeah.
1: And the third is hypnotic passivity. And it's this hypnotic state that we've, I believe, got, gotten to in a culture and you share it is we who are made in the image of our distorted, disordered, denatured world the better keep it running even as it runs us into the ground. So you give beautiful descriptions as to how we've taken on these character traits but also how culture, society, social media, the news, advertisers feed on this.
0: Yeah. So so Eric From who we began quoting, talked about the social character. And the social character is the personality traits that a society would seek to inculcate in its members in order to keep itself going. I, again, I've sort of updated that. Now, in Huxley's Brave New World, people are literally gestated in a test tube and they're biochemically and environmentally trained and developed to fulfill certain roles and to be happy with those roles. Now, we're not gestated in test tubes and we're not mechanically programmed like that, but, it's, but but almost like we were. Because as Huxley points out in The Brave New World, the thing is to want to do what society expects you to do. So that what we end up wanting to do has got nothing to do with our own particular needs or true nature. It has to do with what the society expects of us. So these three traits. So we, we always, we're always not programmed like in Brave New World, but Huxley wrote that Brave New World not as some kind of a fantasy. He wrote it because this is where he saw society going. <laughs> and it's only become more acute since he wrote that book in the thirties, I think. Yeah. And since, Huxley, uh, since Eric Fromm wrote and spoke in, in, in the mid 20th century so these character traits of disconnection from ourselves, this society needs us to be disconnected from ourselves. Otherwise, we wouldn't elect the politicians that we elect. Mm. If we're connected to our gut feelings, there's a very interesting story about Ronald Reagan. Um, Oliver Sacks, who was a British-American neurologi- British neurologist and, and, and writer, he wrote uh, The Man Who Mistook, His Wife, Wife for Hat and other very famous books. And he, he worked with neurologically challenged patients. And he describes an experience that he witnessed on a ward where there were patients who were aphasiac. That means they had a stroke, they lost their capacity for processing language. They're called aphasics. Uh, These aphasic patients as a group are watching around Reagan, the president on television. And most of them are laughing. And some of them are outraged. And Sachs asks himself, is it that they don't understand Reagan? or is that they understand him all too well? And what it was is these people could not be mesmerized by the words because they didn't understand the words. They're reading his body language Mm. and they read that he was a complete phony. Mm. And why was Reagan a phony? Because not that he intended to be, but because he was a traumatized child. His father was a heavy alcoholic and Reagan developed this Teflon, non-involved, emotionally distant, inauthentic persona as a way of surviving is childhood in this insane world that above it reassuring presence was seen as a political strength and these aphasiacs who didn't buy into the words they just saw the real person they didn't buy it for a minute so what I'm saying is that if we were connected to God feelings there's a lot of things we wouldn't be choosing mm. a lot of things we wouldn't buy that we don't need a lot of people we wouldn't follow are actually um not authentic themselves so the big way that this society survives is by people disconnected from their gut feelings so that's what i mean by it's an essential part of our social character is to be disconnected from ourselves and the society wants us to be disconnected
1: right because it keeps the machine going it's very much so And, and the way you describe it it's almost like I think of The Matrix less like a movie and more like a documentary showing well, ex- exactly. exactly how plugged into the system we are, into The Matrix. And it's like a very real thing. There's this hypnotic rhythm in which people don't even realize they're in, much like The Matrix, that feed into the system that supports people at the top, people, the oligarchy of America that it has become. And um, so is there anything that you want to speak to just like how the mass hypnosis continues to propagate and how we can start to dismantle that.
0: Well, interesting. You mentioned the matrix because I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure that I've heard the story that the people that wrote the matrix did. So after they took part in a self-awareness program, Mm. which I won't mention, but they did, you know, so that they could see all of a sudden the gap between how they lived and, and the reality, you know, um, well look, mass hypnosis, uh, let's take to something simple. Let's take America's wars. Since the 1970s, um, America's been involved in several wars. Each time there's a war, sooner or later it transpires that it was based on a pack of lies. And this is true in American history. The Mexican-American war was based on a pack of lies. The Spanish-American war was based on a pack of lies. Um, uh, the Vietnam War. And all these things were documented. It's, it's not even controversial anymore. But at the time, everybody bought into it. Now, anybody who had done the research at the time would have known right away that they were being fed lies. And despite the fact that, or, or say the um, the lie about the um, weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, which never existed, anybody with eyes in their heads, knew that that was a manipulation and it wasn't true. The result was that thousands of Americans and half a million Iraqis died. But despite the fact that each time the lies are exposed, when the next war comes along, everybody still goes along with it. Well, that's mass hypnosis. It's like, there's all this history. And if you take the average American, ask them to string together two intelligent sentences about the history of Afghanistan. They couldn't tell you anything. The Ukraine war, right now, without going to the politics of it, ask the average American to give you two sentences on the history of Ukraine, two intelligent consecutive sentences on the history of Ukraine that didn't start last year, but still so going back into history. They couldn't. And yet they get swept along every time into the narrative. And I'm only talking about these wars. I could talk about any number of political issues. You know, it takes a kind of a passivity or take an issue that surely affects us all, climate change. This is, we're talking today, this is January the 16th, I think. Um, today, there's another article about Greenland. How about how the, ice mass of Greenland is is melting at a faster rate than it has for over a millennium. Now, we all see it happening, but we're all totally passive in the face of it. It takes a hypnotic state of passivity. I mean, we're actually seeing the earth changing because of our own activities. Nobody denies that except people in utter emotional denial states, or unless you work for an oil company where it's your job to deny it. But nobody else can ignore what's going on. But you and I, we live our lives as if it wasn't happening. Well, that's a state of hypnotic passivity. Mm. So and and so this society, of course, thrives on that, yeah. because we get to be led into foreign policy adventures or economic policies that are turned out to be utterly, ultimately harmful. What we were. I don't even say willing participants, but we're passive participants. And I could go on, but there's a kind of passivity about us. And it's that passivity that allows advertisers to beam programs into our homes and into our machines that addict our our infants. Our infants are getting addicted to technology. You can see it on brain scans. You can see it in their behavior. Would you allow drug dealers into your house to inject heroin into your infants? But we're allowing it. So that takes a tremendous amount of passivity.
1: Yeah, it's like a mass psychosis that has become so normalized and just accepted yeah. as just the status quo, just carry on as business as usual. And there's a part of my time, like, you know, six, seven years ago when I got very much so into seeing this and waking yeah. up to this. And I think it's important to become aware of what's happening on a global scale, but then also reclaiming the personal responsibility to see where am I still asleep in my own life, right? Yeah,
0: absolutely. And bringing
1: that back home within ourselves because that's ultimately the only thing we have control over. So, is there anything you want to speak to into inviting people just to try <laughs> before trying to wake up the world and liberate the world? We got to start where our feet are.
0: Well, sure. And and I was speaking just a few days ago with. Um, this wonderful Buddhist meditation teacher, uh, Tara Brach, and and she talks about the trance that we're all in. So, you know, the trance is when we're not aware that we're there, that we're not aware of ourselves. You know, we're just sort of automatically carrying on with something. And, you know, there I am at my hotel room last night, you know, toggling from one YouTube video to another. And all of a sudden, yes, I'm in a trance. Mm. What am I doing? I'm not doing anything useful? I'm not even doing anything that entertaining. I'm just an automatic pilot. So you're totally right, and we all find ourselves in this trance much of the time, lack of lacking aware of our bodies and our minds and what our life intentions are. I mean, I I tell you, I. I I hate the idea of being on my deathbed and looking at it I'm like, what did I do with all that time? You know, <laughs> yeah. even now, you know? Yeah. So, um, yeah, so that waking up and that taking responsibility is a daily task. Again, this culture tends to lull us. It's designed to lull us to sleep all the time. Um, with um, Thomas Merton, who's a Catholic monk, also an and a mystic, and he also lived in mid 20th century, in, and in his um, um, autobiography called The Seven Story Mountain, he talks about that this whole society is designed to lull us to sleep with our products and our Hollywood films and everything else to to keep us in a state of um, passivity. Yeah, controlled. Yeah, controlled. Yeah, yeah. So and 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 and, of course, wittingly or unwittingly we get to be willing participants in this mass hypnosis.
1: Yeah. And it, it doesn't make it easier that, for example, with social media, that algorithms are literally meant to keep us <laughs> as engaged with the least amount of effort that we yeah. can just sit there and they'll, they'll even do the scrolling for us now. We just have to stare at the screen and keep getting dopamine.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, and, and, and those devices are designed with um, addictive mm, blandishments in mind. They're designed to keep. Uh, there's a company called Dopamine Lab, which helps to design programs for cell phones for us. You know, dopamine is, is 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 a chemical that we need for life, but when we don't generate it through meaningful activity, we get a, we get hooked into um, false activities that that allow, spike our dopamine for us. And it's a very deliberate attempt. It's it's not. They call it neural marketing. They're actually marketing stuff to get our nervous system hooked, mm. you know. And uh, we participate in it.
1: Yeah, I I want to touch on how, oftentimes the society around us will capitalize right. The in, before our minds make the environment. The environment yeah. makes us right. Yeah. And who we are as individuals when we come into the world. You know, we are these. Some might say we're connected to our true nature in this blank, blank state. But I actually want to touch on and ask you about intergenerational trauma, because of course, you know, we have the traumas that we've occurred in this lifetime, yeah. but also as a species, as a culture, as a people, African-Americans, Middle Easterns, we all mm-hmm. have our own individuation of trauma that is within our bloodline. And how do you see that stored in the unconscious? Because let's say I'm in my twenties and thirties and I have an ex- you know, I have, I have some sort of repression of emotion or something that I can't necessarily point to an event that happened in my life and maybe it didn't happen in this life. But how do you see it? Is everything just coming from this life or is it essentially the genes and how they uh, impress
0: upon us? Well, so, so some people believe in past lives even. you know. My mind has never been able to go there. Uh, I usually find it sufficient to look at a person's life in this Temporal state yeah. and find enough reasons for why they are the way they are. That doesn't mean that past generations don't come into it. but what, what I am saying is that the effect of past generation is past generations is passed on to us in this lifetime. Yeah. So in Canada, there's a terrible history of our native people being horribly abused by the state. their children were abducted for a hundred years and sent to terrible residential schools where they were sexually, emotionally and physically abused and many of them died at the hands of the church and the state. It so happens that our indigenous Canadians also make up a large percentage of our prison population. They have much higher rates of addiction, suicide, mental health issues, physical illnesses that they never used to have before colonization. And unfortunately, And and whereas they used to parent in a much healthier way than so-called advanced societies parent, they really knew how to parent. Hold kids, support them, give them an environment that reared them to be confident, self-assured, socially connected human beings. They knew how to do it. They were much closer to our nature. That's been largely extirpated as a result, now they abuse their kids. So each generation then passes on its trauma to the next. So in a lot of native communities, it's almost impossible to find young girls by the time they're teenagers who had not been sexually abused. Now that's the impact of the past, but it's being exerted in this particular lifetime. Then you have what's called epigenetic transmission, which is, means that the the way the genes function, if one generation is traumatized, that alters not the gene structure, but the genetic functioning. And those, that genetic functioning can be passed on to future generations. That's a new science. I don't think we fully know yet how strong those epigenetic effects are. It's an emerging field. It's been some very interesting research. But in general, and certainly it's already true that when a mother carries an infant, the stresses and traumas that she is burdened with can affect the developing brain and personality of the child already, in the womb already. So yes, the experience, you know, and as a Jew, I can tell you that the traumas of previous generations certainly have an impact on, you know, as a as a part Palestinian, you know, you know the same thing. Yeah. And uh, in fact, there's been an unfortunate <laughs> set of circumstances that have, in my view, we impose the trauma of one people onto another people. We're here today yeah. in, in yeah. loving
1: embrace. <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, so, so the past trauma does happen. And Eckhart Tolle, the spiritual teacher, talks about the pain body, which is really our accumulated traumas that affect us. And he talks about the pain body can exist on a social and historical level as well. Yeah. So women, the, you know, because of the persecution of women, the witch hunts, the oppression of women, the rape and so on women carry that pain body and and uh, certain peoples carry a heavier pain body than other people's so yeah it's all multi-generational it's all historical and i think that the effects always exerted in this particular lifetime yeah
1: yeah absolutely i think in the middle part of the book you give so many examples of how the trauma that we store within us lead to the manifestations of illness for example racism leading to uh, asthma or even within culturally uh, how african americans deal with hypertension more frequently and how sometimes we just look at the diagnosis of whatever the disease is and think that um that's it but like there's all these psychosomatic emotional elements that we just are not aware of that are often the real reason for why we have the manifestation of a disease or a diagnosis. So is there anything you want to speak to there? Because I thought it was so fascinating in all the examples from gender to race to um, the different things that we hold within us that create the illness.
0: Sure, so this is where my profession, the medical profession is so remiss in its duties. Because we have the science now I mean, we have the science elegantly delineated, showing the unity of mind and body, showing how emotions affect physiology, which also means that our relationships affect physiology because our relationships um, program our emotions. So when there's a study that shows that parents whose kids are, parents are very stressed, their kids are more likely to have asthma, It's because the stresses of the parents affect the physiology of the child. That's been known for decades, it's not even controversial. And yet, you go to the average physician with asthma, they'll never talk to you about stress. They'll just give you inhalers, which is necessary, but not sufficient to deal with the issue. Same way, there's been a study that showed that the more experiences of racism a black American woman has to endure, the greater risk for asthma. Now the physiology is very simple. I'm not gonna go into it here, but it's very simple. It's very straightforward, not even controversial. And how do we treat asthma, by the way? You know how we treat it? We give people stress hormones. We give adrenaline and cortisol in the form of injections or inhalers. Should we maybe ask ourselves, gosh, we're treating it with stress hormones? Does stress have something to do with it maybe? As a matter of fact, if one asks oneself, which medications are used most commonly across the board? If you come in with inflammation of the intestines, as in colitis, or the joints, as in rheumatoid arthritis, or the skin, as in eczema or psoriasis, or the nervous system, as in multiple sclerosis, or the lungs. What do we give people? We give people steroids. What are steroids? They're stre- they're the stress hormones that our adrenal gland manufactures. Maybe we should see that there's a connection between stress and all these conditions, and there is. So. Great pioneers of medicine, who I won't name now, but they're in the book, in the 19th century, already identified that multiple sclerosis, rheumatoid arthritis, and breast cancer were related to stress. They had no science then. They were just giants of medicine with tremendous insight. Since then, there's been a hundred years of research showing the relationship between, say, stress, trauma, and rheumatoid arthritis. And there's there's women, by the way, who develop 70, 80% of autoimmune diseases. Nobody understands why. Well, they just happen to be the more, the stress absorbers of their whole families and of their men as well. That's why they have more stress-related conditions such as rheumatoid arthritis, much more. It's also simple, it's also straightforward, and it's also scientific. To go back to black Americans and hypertension, you know, there's this, they have a high risk, black American men have a higher risk of high blood pressure, hypertension is called. Their genetic relatives in Africa don't. It's not genetic. So what is it? Well, let's do a simple linguistic uh, exercise. Take the word hypertension and split it. Hypertension, hypertension. Oh, too much tension. Black American kids already have higher blood pressure than white kids. You know, and why? Because of the stress of racism. And just to conclude this, um, a wonderful American physician called George Engel back in 1972 called for what he termed a biopsychosocial view of medicine, which is to recognize that our biology is inseparable from our psychology, which is inseparable from our social relationships. We are biopsychosocial creatures. And all those influences determine our health or our illness.
1: Once you see it, it's like obvious, right? Yeah. Do you feel like the medical professionals is just a it's a problem of ignorance or is it really malevolent intent from higher up corporations that, I mean, obviously profit from the ongoing cycles of not creating cures, but
0: keeping customers? Well, it is true that Pharmaceutical companies want to create products that people will have to take for a long time, so they're not particularly interested in cures. But they don't even have that vision. But what makes the medical, you know, and and you know, and there's lots of examples of chicanery in the pharmaceutical industry where drugs are promoted as much more effective than they really are, or the side effects that are known are kind of denied or diminished. You know, so they're not above. As any profit-making an entity, their bottom line is profit. Ethics is not high on the list. <laughs> They're not unique in that, you know. Airline industry, the auto-making industry, the fossil fuel industry, the food industry, yeah. the entertainment industry. Ethics isn't, you know. Corporate ethics is kind of like a oxymoron, like you know, like mid- military intelligence, you know, like yeah. the, the two don't go together. <laughs> Like you say
1: in the book, you're not, it's not like they're trying to kill people. They're just trying to make money. And if they kill people, it's just like
0: a... Bye-bye. Yeah, they're not trying to kill you. They just don't care if you die. You know, like, <laughs> like They'll sell you junk foods knowing how harmful they are. Yeah. They're not trying to kill you. They're just trying to make money. But they don't care if you die. They don't care. No. But what makes the medical profession so susceptible to that kind of pressure? That's not the fault of the pharmaceutical companies. That has to do with both the ignorance and the arrogance of the medical profession. The ignorance comes in not looking at the science that I've been referring to. Not looking at the studies linking multiple sclerosis and stress and trauma. Plenty of them. Not looking at the physiology of how trauma inflames the nervous system. Not looking at the physiology of how people traumatized in childhood carry higher markers, infl- inf- inflammatory chemicals in their bloodstream. It's all there. Not looking at how trauma and stress in childhood affects the functioning of one's chromosomes. I mean, the science is is there. So there's a kind of ignorance there. Mm. The arrogance is in assuming that doctors don't think they know everything, but the arrogance comes into thinking that what they don't know is not worth knowing. So wisdom of indigenous people, for example, which has shown the mind-body unity forever not shown it recognized it modern science has shown it indigenous wisdom has always maintained it so what i'm saying to you about the biopsychosocial social nature of human beings and illness that's not news to any indigenous healer our arrogance is in dismissing the wisdom of other peoples and of human tradition you know i mean our science is amazing nobody can deny its achievements um Nobody can, I mean, it's, it's miraculous what modern medicine can do. It's also very limited and the arrogance is in not recognizing the limitations. Mm.
1: The degree in which we experience joy and suffering in our life oftentimes comes in like, depending upon the constitution of our personality. You said that if a parent doesn't know how to hold a child, A child will develop a mind to hold itself right yeah
0: that that came from a therapist
1: great um and so the minds that we develop to hold ourselves become the color tinted glasses in which we view the world and like we spoke to earlier with the reference to the medical industry it's like if we see a problem or we see a, 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 a leaf on a tree that is turned brown or fruit that isn't it's like the solution oftentimes is to paint over the mm-hmm. fruit with the color red paint instead mm-hmm. of treating the root and giving the nutrients to the soil. Likewise, as an individual with our, within our own nature, if we have come to this withered, crippled place within our own psyche, you know, because of the personality that, we, that we've developed, I just would love for you to share how we can, one, gain awareness on what the personality is and then how, Inextricably connected it is to the amount of suffering and joy that we have.
0: Yeah. So we talk about, for example, a winning personality. What is the personality winning? It's winning approval and admiration of others. Why does somebody have to win? That? Why is somebody compelled to win that? Because they didn't have ch- they didn't have the acceptance and the admiration just for who they are in their early childhood. To so develop this winning personality until they get depressed. Because it wasn't being they weren't being their true self. We get people who are very nice, very nice. I worry about the very nice people because that niceness is very often a personality trait in which they actually repress their healthy aggression, their healthy capacity to set boundaries and to express healthy anger when somebody's transgressing. And they take on the needs of others, so everybody thinks that they're so nice. And when they go to their funeral, how nice they were. And that niceness is what killed them, because that niceness reflected a repression of their their healthy anger. Anger, you know. So the personality is not who we are, and and, and the the problem is, and and this is of course, a spiritual teacher teaching that goes way back to ancient India at least, that the personality that we develop is not actually the essential ourselves. So modern psychology has beautifully studied and depicted how the personality develops. And the personality develops in interaction with the environment and basically kids will develop traits that will help them fit in with the environment. If the environment doesn't accept them for who they actually are Then we develop these personality traits that are designed to make make us acceptable. So I'll be charming, I'll be winning personality, I'll be very nice, or I'll be very consumed by being attractive so I can attract attention. To me, this very sad phenomena of people as they age, desperately trying to look younger because they're so identified with their attractiveness. Who am I if I'm not being attractive? But that's a function of the childhood programming reinforced by cultural conditioning. Um, so you have the multi-billion dollar cosmetic surgery industry. Article at Time magazine today about science is discovering the ways to reverse aging. We just can't accept the reality that we get old. You know You know what? <laughs> it's all going to lead nowhere. Because there's such a thing as nature. You know? And uh, the wisdom isn't part to get around nature is how to align with it you know but we don't, in this society it doesn't get that at all mm. um, there's a way of getting old aging physically without aging in our essential self and in our in our minds you know so that you can be a very youthful 90 year old or you can be a very old 45 year old mm. you know and it's all has to do with internal dynamics So um, I'm not even sure what a question I'm answering anymore. (laughs) I'm sure it's a good answer, but I don't know to (laughs) what. It was a
1: great answer. And I think it's just important to interlay how the personalities we develop then then, uh, become deleterious, obviously within our experience in ways we're not aware of that lead to addictions that we we can't seem to resolve, right? And you said, "Don't ask why the addiction, why the pain, Yeah. the pains that we hold." Oftentimes, were the origins of the personality being developed in the first place—that persona that we develop, which is a mask. Yeah. Um, that is the the barrier between us and the wound. So, like, serves as the protection mechanism as it did earlier in our childhood. But then, it also becomes the barrier to joy as we as we age.
0: Absolutely, and you said it very. Uh succinctly um well well, to to give you a personal example so um as a physician i was a workaholic doctor now i genuinely wanted to serve people so wanting to serve humanity wasn't any kind of a false personality trait it was genuinely expressive of who i am as of many of my colleagues but it doesn't operate on its own it operates in a context in conjunction with other dynamics that are not so pure. So one dynamic that certainly I could own to is I really believe that if I go to medical school, I'll have respect. Finally, they'll respect me. Well, why do they even need that? Cause I didn't respect myself. So I have to have a stethoscope and a, you know, the white coat, you know, I'm somebody. So there's that not so healthy, but even more subtle is the need to be needed, the need to be wanted. As an infant, for reasons I won't go into now, but it's explained in the book, I got the message as an infant that I wasn't wanted. That's how I interpreted the world's actions. I wasn't wanted. Now, if you're not wanted, medical school is a great way to make yourself wanted because you're offering something very important to people and when they're in crisis, they want you all the time. Very addictive because there's a hole inside you where you should be and you're trying to fill it all the time from what you get from the outside. So it's never enough. So the more you get, the more you want. Mm-hmm. That's the nature of any addiction. Mm-hmm. So Therefore I'm addicted to working. Well, that kills joy. It also makes me absent as a parent to my children and makes me absent as a partner in my marriage, which also is not a joy enhancer, exactly. You know. <laughs> And so, this trait of working hard for others, and the world admires it. And The more workaholic a physician I am, the the more the world thinks I'm wonderful. And the more money I make. So I I get all this reinforcement for my disconnection from myself. And then you couple that with the fact that I really wanted to help people. Mm. It gets so confusing. And and the thing is to separate what's genuine in that, which is the desire to be of service and to engage in meaningful activity and to separate that from the need to fill a hole in myself. This is hard work.
1: Yeah.
0: And in society, again, it, it seduces us into that disconnection and even rewards it.
1: Yeah. Yeah, definitely, like we spoke to you earlier. Um, in the book you share, comedian uh, Daryl Hammond said to you that cutting himself yeah. afforded him a crisis that's more manageable than the terror inside of you, yeah. the, the, the one that's ongoing in your head.
0: Yeah. Now, no, Hammond is an interesting example. Uh, there's a documentary about him called Cracked Up, which is on Netflix. And th- th- then I spoke to him after the documentary, and he um, had decades of mental illness, so-called. Multiple medications and diagnoses of about 30 or 40 psychiatrists. They all try to figure out what's wrong with his brain, give him the right medication, until a psychiatrist finally said to him, I don't want to call what you've got an illness. You've been abused. And he was in childhood. That's what the documentary is about. And so the self-cutting is one manifest was one of manifestation of his so-called mental illness. And anybody who cuts themselves, when I speak with them, my question is not always what's wrong with this behavior, but what's right about it? What's it doing for you? Now, anybody who self cuts, and I give several examples, Daryl being one of them, is that cutting serves a purpose. of, First of all, it gives them a pain they can identify, as opposed to this searing emotional pain that's just so confusing and so threatening. It gives Daryl a crisis he can handle. Now he has to run around finding bandages and dealing with the cut as opposed to the chaos in his head, the crisis that he can't handle. Um, self-cutting also releases releases the body's own painkillers, the endorphins. Mm. So you temporarily actually might even feel better. Mm, like numb it a little bit, yeah. Yeah, so the point of the Daryl Hammond incident or, or episode uh, is to show that these mental health, these so-called mentally ill behaviors They all serve a function. And that function has to do with dealing with the trauma that has not been addressed. And Hammond is a very forthright, um, self-disclosing example of that. So there he is on the one hand. He appears on Saturday Night Live more than anybody else. And he's a brilliant comedian, getting all these accolades and making a lot of money. And just tormented inside until finally says to him, there's a reason for that torment. You're not crazy. Mm. Yeah, so beautifully
1: put. I think, I mean, you shared as well, like it's not the, it's never the thing, right? It's not the heroin, it's not the whiskey, it's not the social media, it's always our relationship to it. That's right. Because somebody could have a completely healthy relationship with a plant medicine, with their phone, um so it's always a relationship to it and so how Uh, do you or
0: or even a glass of wine right you know whatever yeah
1: yeah i guess what is the distinction there in somebody that has a healthy relationship versus versus not and how does that manifest in our in our life
0: in a healthy relationship with any behavior whether it's to do with uh, um say a glass of wine or your work or your sexuality or your relationship, or how you relate to food. Clearly, we can have a healthy relationship with food. (laughs) You know, in fact, we have to. Um, But we can also have a dysfunctional relationship with food that could threaten our health. The key question is, are we aware, are we conscious, are we making deliberate choices, or are we driven by unconscious pain? And so, the unhealthy relationship is always driven by unconscious pain. So... If I get into a relationship, because I'm looking for a life partner with whom I can grow and whom I can cherish and feel cherished by, even if it takes several relationships to get there, that's just healthy human behavior. If I'm engaging in relationships, because I need validation and I need somebody to prove to me that I'm lovable or because I need to dominate somebody or perhaps get some comfort in feeling dominated so I'm driven to do it, then it's unhealthy. Same with food. Yeah. If I'm eating to enjoy it consciously and to nourish my body, that's great. But if I'm doing it to soothe my pain, and if I'm if I'm eating junk food to release the endorphins in my brain so I can temporarily feel better, yeah. If I'm using it to stuff down my pain, literally you're stuffing down your pain by stuffing down the food, if that's why I'm doing it, it's unhealthy. So it's not the activity per se, it's one's internal relationship to it mm-hmm. that, that defines whether it's healthy or addictive. And the key question is, are you craving it to it give you temporary pleasure, but cause harm in the long term? If yes, it's not a healthy relationship.
1: Yeah. It's almost just like if we going into a behavior, whatever it is, that could be addictive or not addictive, based on our relationship to it. As yeah. if we're going into from the experience of joy rather than the seeking of joy, mm-hmm. and the temporary relief from the self, which we, which is necessary in the addictive behavior. Right there's like Young has that saying uh, that pleasure is tension reduction. Mm-hmm. And I think that's just very apt there because it's, it's these external addictions or whether it's more visceral like, you know, self-harm um, or a relationship that we have to a drug or, you know, pornography or whatever it might be. It's giving us temporary relief from the pain that we can't seem to bear.
0: Yeah. Well, and that's my definition of addiction is any behavior that gives us temporary pleasure or relief and therefore we crave it. But then it creates harm in the long term, and we can't give it up. That's what an addiction is. So that could be anything: mm. gambling, sports, eating, shopping, work, relationships, pornography, food, oh, internet, of course, A- anything. Yeah, anything. Or we could do any of those things. Well, not pornography, but we could do more. We could, be- but we could be interested in sexuality. Without being unhealthy, without that being in any way unhealthy. In fact, it being a very healthy expression of who we are. Mm -hmm. It all has to do with our relationship to it.
1: Yeah, it just feels like the relationship to how we relate to just about everything in our reality is like the most important to pay attention and gain awareness on because that's how we relate. That's how we commune with the world around us. Is is in the relation that we have to it. What is your distinction between like the 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 Buddhist view of non attachment? but then also expressing our emotions in a healthy way. So we can Mm. see the illusory nature of whatever is happening. We can see the content of our experience in a larger context of awareness, yet we do have the very real experience of being a human with our shit. And so how has it been, you know, either for you on your journey and how you support people to be non-attached, but then also be very authentic to your real-time experience?
0: The word attachment, it's interesting because it's got two uses Um, when the when the Buddha talked about attachment he talked about an unhealthy craving and holding on to mind patterns or behaviors or objects or anything so we're two so so letting go of attachment non-attachment is kind of a Buddhist ideal is that we don't look to the outside to fulfill us that's really what non-attachment is about you know um I mean, it's one thing for me to want my book to do well. It's another thing for me to be attached to the book doing well, so that how the book is doing then determines how I'm doing. Yeah, not a healthy attachment. Right. You know. But then we use the word attachment in modern psychology in a totally different way. Yeah. Where attachment actually is this this relationship between parent and child. Yeah. Uh, connection. And and it's essential. Yeah. So all mammals are creatures of attachment. No mammal would survive without attachment relationship with the nurturing environment, where the attachment is a drive that pulls the parent towards the child and the child towards the parent. Or the drive that pulls two adults together, like it's a gravitational force that pulls two bodies together in order to procreate children, you know, or, or, or to live in community, you know. So attachment in that sense is a healthy human drive. Here's the kicker, those people that don't get their atta- their healthy attachment needs met in childhood will become attached in the Buddhist sense to externals. Mm. Because they haven't got the internal fulfillment and in connection to themselves. Now they have to get it from the outside. So the lack of attachment in the healthy sense leads to that attachment in the unhealthy sense. Mm.
1: That's a very powerful distinction. Because we're going to create all these coping mechanisms and behavioral compensations if we don't get our basic fundamental needs yet, which we spoke to yeah. in the previous um, live podcast. Uh, so, in the pursuit of expressing our emotions in a healthy way, how do you? What is health, a healthy expression of our emotions if we're not to suppress it or repress it or express it in a way that is dangerous or harmful to those around yeah. us? how How do we release? What is inside of us? And um, somebody you quoted in the book, "What's in must out."
0: Yeah. Well, What is in us must out. In this case, um, the physician researcher who said that was talking about her creative urges. Mm. You know, it's, if something is inside us, we have to give it expression; right. otherwise, we'll choke. He right. said, "You know." So, but which but I'd it, love
1: I'd love to go there as well. But yeah, then also there's these emotions too. That must.
0: yeah. Well, um, so one of the essential needs of children. One of the essential developmental needs of the children, in the absence of which child development is distorted, is the freedom to express all their emotions. Now, in our brains, there are certain emotional circuits. We're wired for them. They include uh, anger, lust, uh, curiosity, uh, playfulness, um, caring for others, fear, grief even panic. We are wired for these. We share these circuits, by the way, with other mammals. The child, in the course of their development, will experience all of them. They have to be able to express it and to have that expression received, understood, attuned with and held by the adult world. When that doesn't happen, we start stuffing our emotions. We start disconnecting from ourselves in order to belong, in order to be accepted, to be acceptable. So then we don't know how to express healthy anger anymore. Healthy anger, there's nothing negative about it. Healthy anger simply says, you're in my space, get out. All animals have it, you know. You enter an animal space, you get an anger display. yeah, you know. Which is good, because it prevents violence. So, at least, it reduces the chances of it. Um, it's a boundary defense. That's all it is. You're in my space. Get out. Yeah. Whether that's physically or emotionally true. No. <laughs> healthy anger is simply a no. Which at the same time is a saying yes to yourself. Um, when people don't are not granted the experience of going through healthy anger, having that understood and respected, by adults, they suppress it. Now it'll burst out of of them in a volcano. Either they totally repress it, in which case they become sitting ducks for malignancy or autoimmune disease, because those are the studied traits of people who develop these conditions. I don't make this stuff up. I've seen it, but I don't make it up. Uh, Or they get into states of explosive anger which is like a volcano where the pressure has been building and building and building and poof, all of a sudden, the volcano blows its top. Yeah. And so the question, if I can translate your question is, if in childhood, we were made to repress that healthy anger, how then do we learn its expression as adults? Yes. Well, that's a question of uh, good therapy, I think, I think, you yeah. know,
1: Yeah, would you just say like creating uh, a nurturing environment for that to be released from within? Because in interpersonal dynamics, whether it's within our family or friends or lover, um, it's like these repressed emotions that we haven't dealt with are a pebble in our shoe that kind of make us uh, shittier versions of ourselves constantly. <laughs> and until we can like have, I guess, the safe space to like take off the shoe and take out the pebble,
0: yeah.
1: um, which could be in, through therapy or psychedelics and a lot of the modalities that you, yeah. That you suggest.
0: Yeah, or, or um, even just awareness. Yeah. Um, if I'm aware that anger is rising within me, well, then I can, if I can be an observer of it and hold it myself, not that I shouldn't experience it, is that I should experience it, but I don't necessarily have to act it out on somebody else. Yeah. Well, that's a question of self-awareness, mindfulness, physical practices. A lot of the martial arts are not about killing others; it's about uh, being present to yourself.
1: Since you brought it up, there's this beautiful part in the book where you, towards the end, page 412, you go into "Before the Body Says No," a self-inquiry exercise. Right? Yeah. These different questions that you su- suggest people explore in order to gain access more and more to their true selves and oftentimes we've created a life for ourselves by virtue of an inauthentic version of ourselves yeah. and in the pursuit of creating an authentic reality we first have to discover who we authentically are and so I'll share these five questions and then we can
0: Sure. Let me just preface it by yeah. saying that this yeah. relates to a book that I mentioned in the beginning called When the Body Says No mm-hmm. which I pointed out that the people who develop autoimmune disease and malignancy, as I said earlier, are people that don't know how to say no. They're the very nice people who take on everybody else's stuff and they don't know how to say no to the world. The body says no for them in a form of illness. And if they can learn from that, there's a lot of healing that's possible. Now in this chapter, we're trying to say to people, well, do you you want to wait to get sick or do you want to learn to say no before your body has to say it for you? So that's the intent for this chapter.
1: Which is, a, I think, a beautiful invitation for all the listeners. Like, It's not ideal, obviously, to wait until we have cancer to like yeah. realize we have to deal with our shit, but yeah. to allow these, these questions to be a process of self-inquiry. Yeah. Question one, in my life's important areas, what am I not saying no to? Question number two. How does my inability to say no impact my life?
0: So let's take an example. I arrive here in L.A., I call you up, Andre, do you want to go for coffee Uh, or tea or whatever? But you've been up all night helping a friend and you're tired. You don't feel like going for coffee. But you don't want to displease me. You want to be a nice guy. And you come for coffee. It's a very trivial example. What happens to you afterwards? What do you feel afterwards? What's the impact?
1: Uh, I'm going to feel like I abandoned myself. And and that's, uh, I guess, maybe... Too much language for it, but (laughs) yeah, uh, yeah, yeah.
0: But you'll have some sense of self betrayal, yeah. yeah Physically, what's the impact? Fatigue, tired, tired. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. So this little word "no," if you don't say it, there's a lot of impact. Yeah. So we're examining, we're we're inviting people in this example to, what is the impact when you don't say no? I'm talking about a no that wants to be said and you don't say. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And
1: And I think that's also just an important thing for the listeners that anybody, you don't ever want somebody to be in your space out of obligation. You know, I I don't want somebody to come help me move because they feel like they have to, only because they genuinely want to, right? And that goes into so many different things. All right, question number three. What body signals have I been overlooking? What symptoms have I been ignoring that could be warning signs? Where do I pay conscious attention?
0: Yeah, so here's the thing. People might feel tired or they might have difficulty sleeping, anxious, they might have dry mouth. Back spasms, stomach aches, frequent colds, um, fatigue, of course. And they go to the doctor saying, headaches. Yeah. They go to the doctor, get rid of these symptoms for me. I'm suggesting, well, nobody wants to live with headaches. And I understand the desire to escape them, but you might want to ask yourself, is my body talking to me? Yeah. Is my body saying no somewhere where I'm not? So, the, so these bodies, so, so do a bit of an inventory. How have I felt this week? And if there are noticeable physical signals, yeah. see them as signals. Don't just dismiss them as symptoms that you want to get rid of. Yeah, Maybe look into what the message is.
1: That's so powerful just because oftentimes we have something that happens within ourselves and we think it's something wrong with us. But instead you're inviting to look at it as a signal is my yeah. bodies are so intelligent. Absolutely. That it's, it's there for a reason. So thank you for the headache because there's something that is going on within me that if I didn't yeah. have the headache would mm. have a uglier manifestation down the road.
0: That's right.
1: Um, so question number four is what is the hidden story behind my inability to say no?
0: Okay, so... I, invite, I come to LA, I call you up, dinner have coffee, you've been up all night, you don't feel like it, but you don't say no. What's the story? Why don't you say no? If I say no, then?
1: Then my friend might not like me. Yeah. Um, what does that mean about my who I am as a friend? Yeah, I'm, I'm
0: selfish. Yeah, all the meaning. So, so that's what I mean. What's the story that you're telling yourself when you're not saying no? Yeah. So, and uh, by the way, if a friend doesn't like you for not having coffee what kind of a friend are they anyway <laughs> yeah but, but 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 you know but but if being liked is a big value to you cuz you weren't then oh they won't like me i, I better not be myself cuz if, yeah. uh, if i'm you know yeah. so 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 what's the story what's what's the hidden belief you know and by the way is it really selfish to say no when i've been up all night is that really what selfishness is about No, not exactly yeah So
1: good. And then yeah, the question five is just deeper inquiry, right? Word that I learned these stories and we've been speaking to that.
0: And the origin is childhood. Right. So there's some childhood programming going on. I learned at some point I learned that if I say no, that's selfish. Somewhere I learned that if I say no authentically, they won't like me. And I was desperate to be liked, to be accepted. So I learned how not to say no.
1: It's, um, it's powerful. In the book, you shared Jamie Lee Curtis's quote. In, in the society, there is a genocide of authenticity. Um, you
0: Is that in the book?
1: Maybe. Maybe it's not. Maybe I got it from
0: somewhere else. I, I was going to put it in there. Okay. But then I thought it, I, I, I've quoted her because she said it. And said, I think it's a wonderful quote. Yeah. But we ended up not putting in the book. Okay. I thought maybe because it's a bit too harsh f- a harsher word, you know. <laughs>
1: Well, yeah, I think if anyone can say, maybe you can, but (laughs) um, regardless, that's a very powerful pointer to like we were speaking to our inability to say no, we're going to develop friendships, relationships in our external reality based off of the inauthentic version of ourselves that we hold on to so dearly, right? And then coming back into discovering who we are going through this process, reclaiming our authentic selves. Oftentimes, there will be a crumbling of our world and the relationships that that were attached to an authentic version of ourselves. That's right. So, what words of advice do you have for people that are maybe going through that or will be going through that as they claim more of their authentic self because there is a kind of perceived death of sorts that is happening when you're releasing who you're not?
0: Well, if you start asserting your own true emotions and saying no where there's a no that wants to be said, some people in your life who you've trained to see you in a certain way will not like it. Mm. And so we talk about this tension between attachment, you know, belonging, being accepted, and authenticity. As a child, you had no choice. Whenever it came to a tussle between attachment and authenticity, you had to choose the attachment, give up the authenticity. Now as an adult, if you start choosing authenticity, you say in a marriage, that's really not working for you. And your partner is just not going to look at themselves in any way at all, or to work on, work on it. Well, as you grow and as you change, you become more authentic, they're not going to like it. Now you have a decision to make. Do I still choose the attachment and suppress the authenticity or do I choose the authenticity at the risk of losing the attachment? What it comes down to is not whether you're going to be in pain or not, because you are. Which kind of pain would you rather be in? You want to choose the pain of self-suppression or the choose of the loss of certain attachments? I can almost guarantee it that as you choose yourself and the authenticity, you'll have new attachments that are a higher level, more respectful, more authentic, more meaningful, more fulfilling. But not right away. Yeah. In the beginning, there might be an estrangement and alienation. There's somebody at the event that you and I participated in last night whose story I know who was sexually abused as a child by their grandfather. In fact, they have a book coming out. In fact, I can mention it. The book is called Glimmer. When she got in touch with that and she began to talk about it, a lot of her family renounced her and, and came in to go through the pain of the loss of attachment figures in her life. But not being authentic was killing her. Yeah. So it's a question of which pain would you rather have? The pain of suppressing yourself? Because believe me, it's going to cause pain. Or the pain of, Uh, losing some attachments Mm. that's the choice you have
1: it's like either you choose pain or you keep letting pain choose you
0: well exactly (laughs) that's exactly what it is now eventually that pain will heal yeah but you're gonna have to go through that process Mm. which is why so many people are afraid of going through it
1: speaking of processes you give a uh in the section on kind of healing coming back into wholeness within ourselves you give the four a's which i think are a good process to coming back into that authentic self Yeah, which I'll share and we can riff on as well. Sure, like pulling these little nuggets. So the four A's and five compassion, some healing principles. Number one, first A is authenticity. We spoke to this, right? Mm -hmm. By Mm -hmm. definition, striving for some idealized self image is incompatible with being authentically who one is. Yeah, And the lack of authenticity as we spoke to makes itself known through tension or anxiety, irritability or regret, depression or fatigue. The second A is agency. And agency is a capacity to freely take responsibility for our existence, exercising responsibility in all essential decisions that affect our lives to every extent possible. We talked we talked about the alternative, which is being asleep
0: yeah. early on, or being passive,
1: being passive, the yeah. hypnotic passivity. The third A is anger, and the fourth A is acceptance. Um, and you share that anger's core message is a, is a concise and potent. No, set as forcefully as the moment demands you very important and acceptance beginning with allowing things as they are, however they are before we can try to integrate it and embrace it and move on. So,
0: yeah. And to tell you the truth, we missed out an A that should have been in there, Mm -hmm. which is called awareness because um, all the, uh, awareness is kind of the ground for all the other four and some of you missed putting, weren't aware enough to put awareness in there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, so the reader will have to forgive us for that. <laughs> but but yeah, and th- those things are essential for health.
1: Yeah, yeah, beautiful. And the awareness like, like you spoke to, that's just so crucial to even begin the process or have the desire to. Yeah. Um, you give a really beautiful distinction as to I mean, I've studied Eastern philosophy you know, quite a bit, and like that's the type of, I guess, text that I most enjoy reading. And in Eastern philosophy, there's not a whole lot of talk of creativity from mm. my perspective. Mm. And I love the framework you give on how sensitivity is tied to our creativity because mm. um, creativity is such a big part of why we're here. We are creative beings. We use our life force energy to bring things forth from the unmanifest to the manifest and oftentimes our sensitivity can be can be viewed as something that is hindering Mm -hmm. instead of a superpower and so Mm -hmm. how do you view the the relationship between the two
0: well sensitivity is simply a trait that people tend to be born with um it's probably significantly genetically determined um and the more sensitive you are, the word sens- sensitivity itself comes from the Latin word for feeling. For the sense here means to feel. So the more sensitive you are, the more you feel. Now, the more you feel, of course, the more you absorb and, and sense and, 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 and get in tune with the environment, which is what artists do. Poets, artists, actors. Creators, you know, sculptors, actors, you know, dancers. It's just like they have these antenna that just pull in energies, you know, which really promotes what you call the superpower of creativity. But that same sensitivity also makes them more susceptible to pain because the same touch that would be experienced as trivial by somebody less sensitive really might hurt the sensitive person. So when you get sensitivity combined with trauma or stress, you get a lot more need to protect yourself. Hence the high rate of addiction amongst, say, uh, actors and musicians. Because mm. they're the sensitive people, they're hurting more. Yeah. They have more of a need to escape from their addictions. And you get one Hollywood story after another of some big star divulging the addiction and, and, you know. Um, So that same sensitive temperament in a supportive, loving environment just becomes a wonderful, creative leader, um, joyful, intuitive person. But in an unsupportive environment, they become more distorted, more hurt, more defensive. Um, the creativity doesn't go away. But it, the creativity starts to serve the personality. Mm. And so you look at all these great artists and actors and musicians who their creativity was so amazing that it leads them to stardom but, on a personal level, they they just die, and sometimes literally they die. And there's so many examples of it.
1: Yeah, it's like the sensitivity is almost like if we would have a piano and from all the way to the end of the to the top is like the full spectrum. Yeah. The more sensitive we are, the more we have access to within the spectrum of like the human experience. exactly. Um, so it's a beautiful thing to have access to the full piano, to the full spectrum of our emotions, to this human experience. But I think, you know, that invitation that you're, you're sharing is um, to not have it just serve your personality, but to allow it be an expression from your soul exactly, and not just our conditioning. Exactly. Yeah.
0: In, in the book, we give the example of Aretha Franklin, by the way, who does mm-hmm. um, a wonderful documentary about her where she gives a concert, I think here in, a, here in L.A. maybe, in a church here when she was mm-hmm. quite young. And she's just channeling God. I mean, that's the only way you can put it, Mm. you know. And that's just coming through her. Mm. Um, And then she's got this song, song R-E-S-P-C-T, Respect, which is kind of an anthem of the women's movement. And she herself was not respected at all. She was an abused child and an abused woman. She had this great great creativity, incredible talent. But she was hobbled from being her true self in her personal life. Mm. And I think that contributed to the illness that killed her.
1: The more that you grow on your journey and the vast amount of experience that you've garnered in your life, do you see a divine design within our wounding? For example nature is obviously intelligent. It doesn't necessarily have to be a higher power and a God and some guy sitting on the clouds, but nature's intelligence is almost, in ways it feels like, is giving us our wounding so that we can strategically move through what we need to move through to gain true access to ourselves. And so through your experience working with so many people, on the other side of our challenge is our gift. So how do you feel like the link is there and do you feel like there is that kind of divine design within our wounding and how it shows
0: up and the purpose it serves? so um the greek playwright right aeschylus uh, has in one of his plays the statement that the master zeus created us so that we have to suffer suffer into truth so when you talk about divine design i i, I just think i don't want to go to the question of divinity but there's something about our nature that um there's a kind of intelligence in it that wants to wants us to be authentic to ourselves. Mm. Not just us, any creature in the world, a plant, an animal, anything. Um, And there's a wonderful spiritual teacher and psychological theorist called A.H. Almas, uh, A-L-M-A-A-S, from whom I've learned a lot and he writes the following. He says, your conflicts, all the difficult things, the problematic situations in your life are not chance or haphazard. They are actually yours. They're specifically yours, designed for you by a part of you that loves you more than anything else. The part of you that loves you more than anything else has created roadblocks to lead you to yourself. You are not going in the right direction unless there's something pricking on the side saying, telling you, look here, this way. That part of you loves you so much that it doesn't want you to lose the chance It will go to extreme measures to wake you up. It'll make you suffer greatly if you don't listen. What else can it do? That's its purpose. Mm. Now, this may seem harsh coming from a medical doctor, but physical illness is often an opportunity for people to wake up. Mm. I don't wish it on anybody. I've just seen it function that way. So we have a chapter called Diseases Teacher, a dreadful gift diseases teacher. And I've talked to so many people who have told me that the illness was the best thing that ever happened to them. And strangely enough, this is even true when I was working in palliative care, administering, ministering to dying people. And somebody would say to me, no, not everybody, but it would happen on occasion that somebody would say, Doc, I don't know what this exactly but this disease, even though it's killing me, is the best thing that ever happened to me because it called me back to myself and I learned what's important in life and what isn't. Now, I don't wish that on anyone, but it's certainly true that there's something in our inner intelligence that's going to make us suffer if we stray away from ourselves. And so for a lot of people, disease has been a huge wake-up call and they've used it that way. And when you study these people, they're so much more happier, so much more fulfilled, so much more present um, for whatever remains to them of life than they were before. And many of them will say, I'll never trade this disease for anything, Mm. you know. And some, of course, even recover if they take that process deep enough and if they have the strength and the capacity to do so. But but they do look upon the illness as some kind of a gift.
1: Yeah, it's like the switch between asking why is life treating me this way to what is life trying to reveal to me? Yeah, And that's just yeah. a powerful reframe and maybe difficult to hear right when you hear the news of a diagnosis or something that yeah. you don't want to you know, wish on somebody. But ultimately, billions of years of evolution have gotten us to this point where the intelligence of nature is so widespread, prevalent, omniscient, omnipotent, and there's no way around it. And we are nature. Well, that's the whole point. <laughs> Contrary to the definition of it. Yeah, yeah we are
0: and just to assure you if you came to me with an inflamed uh wrist i wouldn't begin to talk to you about what stresses in your life and how are you so, I, I i deal with your inflammation first mm-hmm. but at some point yeah that inquiry is so helpful to people right you know at the appropriate time
1: right and it might be the only way out, right? Cause like if you could go through three rounds of chemotherapy and all th- all, the, all the ways and through the medical system for trying to heal a cancer, but until you reconcile what is truly at the root, right?
0: Mm, no, what would I, you wouldn't, say? I wouldn't say that. People are cured of cancer no, because, no, no, of course. without doing that work. I'm
1: just saying there are certain cases, right? Where, for, for example, unless they heal and reconcile the deeper emotional traumas, yeah. they might not be able to be healed through just Western medicine, right? Would you say that?
0: Well, this is where I make a decision: cure and heal. You can be cured, in the sense that the disease will go away. It doesn't mean you are healed. Yeah, the healing means becoming whole. Yeah, yeah. So, um, illness can be an opportunity to become whole, to really heal. Mm. Um, and but the but the reality of Western medicine is that it's largely helpless in the face of most chronic conditions. Like we don't know autoimmune conditions like lupus and rheumatoid arthritis, multiple sclerosis. Whole range of them, we can mitigate the symptoms and usually look for deterioration and see that as the prognosis. Yeah. So, um, now when it comes to acute conditions and some cancers, rest of medicine is brilliant and people can be brought back from the brink of death, you know, or certainly from the brink of debility. Um, but for most chronic conditions of mind and body, we're rather poor at really helping people heal. We just don't have the mindset and the capacity to do so yeah
1: whether it's the ignorance or the arrogance like you spoke to earlier yeah yeah why is it essential to be vulnerable to heal
0: mm, well it's not that it's essential to be vulnerable to be healed because everybody's vulnerable vulnerable simply it's again it's a latin word it means to wound and vulnerability is the capacity to be wounded Now i assure you we're all totally vulnerable from conception until death mm. there's no such thing as a human being who's not vulnerable there's just a lot of human beings who don't want to recognize their vulnerability so to reframe your question it's yeah. not why is it essential to be vulnerable we all are just to recognize it why is it essential to come to terms with it to accept it yeah because um, nothing in nature grows without vulnerability so i give this example in the book a tree doesn't go where it's hard and thick it goes where it's soft and green and vulnerable. Um, take a crustacean animal like a crab. It can't grow inside its shell. When it's hard, it can't grow. It needs to molt and become very soft and vulnerable. So growth and vulnerability go along together. That's why children are so vulnerable. Mm-hmm. you know. And why is it essential? Because only through vulnerability can we grow. And our denial and, or a denial of and escape from our vulnerability keeps us stuck, hardened, keeps us really rigid. We can't grow, we can't heal. And you know, you, you see this in veterans all the time. These, these, these men who are um, programmed into a kind of toxic masculinity. Yeah. are killing and accepting being killed. are just, that's okay, you know? Then they go through their PTSD treatment and I say, "Oh my God, I'm vulnerable. I can hurt. I can accept those emotions. I don't have to deny them. I don't have to be this tough guy all the time, you know." So that 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 post-traumatic growth that happens always happens through embracing people's vulnerability, mm. you yeah. know.
1: And then, how do you how do you propose people be the most effective and efficient advocate for healing? Right, because oftentimes as we gain awareness and we start to go on the path of healing within ourselves, we then see all the ways in which the people and circumstances around us are not healed and we can fall into the trap of trying to change people and becoming healed.
0: So, yeah, yeah, well, the first thing is not to be an evangelist. And uh, yeah. almost who I just quoted, he said once, I think he's the one who said that, um, um, uh, protect us from the people that want to save the world, you know? <laughs> Yeah. So if you find yourself filled with evangelic st- fervor, look a bit deeper inside. Yeah. What is it that you're trying to do by trying to save the world? That's on the one hand, and on the other hand, <clears throat> when I was working with severely addicted people in Vancouver, they would say to me very authentically, "Doc, if I ever get out of this, I'm going to spend the rest of my life working to make sure that nobody else has to go through this." So there is a as soon as there's healing and a movement towards wholeness, there's a genuine movement towards to wanting to heal others. Yeah. So that should not be dismissed or derided. It should be honored. But the question is, what's driving it? So if, if, I'm telling you, whenever there's an evangel- evangelical fervor where you need somebody to heal, where you need to heal others, but it's a need, yeah, then you better watch it. Yeah. And, and you do some more healing yourself. You yeah. Know? So that's the distinction I would make.
1: Yeah, my friend Peter Krohn always says that there's none so self-righteous as the newly converted. <laughs> well, well, exactly. Yeah.
0: And, 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 I'm, and, I've, and I've been through that a number of times. Yeah. But there's, a new, there's a new insight, new, a new um, um, impression, a new wisdom you might even say, in whatever way you want to inflict it on everybody, you know? Yeah, totally. And, no, and, and nobody can stand it. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but it is that natural tendency, I guess, or inclination of light to spread light right it's for awareness to spread awareness and once we have that growth within ourselves oftentimes we'll probably want to unconsciously enforce that on other people but then the deeper desire there is to just expand what wants to expand which is
0: well take your light analogy try pushing light can't be done yeah you you can shed it and but yeah so that desire to push it on others is is some unresolved problem that you st- still haven't dealt with. Yeah, and you know, again, I've I've been through that. Yeah,
1: yeah. powerful. Be the light. <laughs> um, all right, cool. Last couple of very quick questions. Yeah. One. Thank you so much for this, by the way, and everybody who's been tuning in and loving this conversation. Let us know in the comment section below and check out the myth of normal link in the description if you haven't already. I highly rec- recommend you purchase it. It's tr- very transformative. What is it
0: like to be seventy eight? Uh, I'm trying to remember. That was three weeks ago. I'm 79. Oh now.
1: wow! What is it like to be 79? <laughs> Happy birthday!
0: Thank you. <laughs> um, what's it like to be anything? Um, <laughs> a, look, uh, this is a sort of a line I've often evoked. You know, it's, 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 uh, so I'm 79 now, and I wouldn't wish to be as young and stupid as I was when I was 78. You know, <laughs> so I am aware of uh, it is possible to grow old which doesn't mean to get more decrepit. Mm. It means to grow as you're getting old. Mm. It's possible to do that. And I hope to st- I hope and pray I can stay on that path. Mm. You know? I know that I know more now and I understand more now, accept more now, see more now, can get more now than I ever could. So in that sense, it's very co- comfortable. On the other hand, I don't swim as fast as I did three years ago or five <laughs> years ago, you know? So that's something to be accepted. So what's it like? So far, I like it. You know, um, it's not the 79 aspect that I like. It's just having a bit more access to myself. That's what I like.
1: Hmm. What advice do you have for young lads like me who want and see their trajectory of hopefully growing old and being maybe 100 one day and up until that point, um, trying to do healing work and transformative work much like of what you're doing what advice do you have for individuals like myself that um, are on similar paths and trying to spread the light and awareness
0: what advice would you have for myself yeah just reverse your question what what advice do you have
1: my advice, I guess, for myself in that in that position would be to continue to stay true to myself and to unravel the gifts that I feel like have uniquely been given to me.
0: Okay, so my advice is that you don't need my advice. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Great. What for you? What do you feel like for you um, has been your single handedly biggest lesson in this life? If you had to pick one,
0: when you say to people, "Who do you think you are?" That's a really good question depending on how I was asked, because you're not who you think you are. Mm. If I just know not.
1: Do you feel like you know yourself?
0: Um, I'm getting there. Uh, uh, I've often said this, you may have heard it, but I've written my epitaph. Do you know what my epitaph is going to be? It's going to be carved on my gravestone. (laughs) It's going to say, it was a lot more work than I'd anticipated. (laughs) So it's just ongoing work. That's all it is. Yeah. But that's not a negative thing. No. It's, it's a good thing. It's a glorious thing. Yeah. Beautiful.
1: What is the strongest memory you have of your life, if you had to pick one?
0: Strongest memory. What do you mean strongest memory?
1: Strongest emotional attachment, I guess, you have to a memory that sticks out. When you look over Dr. Gabramate's life and you see his history, what stands out as potentially the most impactful memory?
0: I just don't think I can give you an authentic answer to that. Uh, no, nothing... No worries. <laughs> um, but if, but if I allow the question to percolate in me, it's you know who comes up is my wife? Mm. This relationship that I'm in and have been for 55 years. Mm. Uh, that's the strongest emotional resonance. Yeah. Mm.
1: If you had to put in a succinct way what your, what your wish for humanity is,
0: Oh, freedom. People need freedom. They need freedom to be themselves. Feed if, if, if I actually did a workshop here in L.A. I participated in it maybe five, six years ago. And the theme was, what is your calling? And um, by calling, I didn't mean what profession you choose. What is your, What calls you? Hmm. And when you leave the earth, or when you return to the earth, um, what would you have wanted to have contributed. So I really got that my calling is that people are free. And so this book, it's all about liberating people or helping people liberate themselves, put it that way. Freedom politically, freedom economically, freedom socially, freedom um, from their unconscious emotions so they can be themselves. I think that's my desire for human beings is freedom.
1: Mm.
0: You know, and, and that's, I think, the essential endeavor of all the great work that has been done in the world mm. uh, is, is, is the desire for freedom
1: you certainly are doing that i know personally within my life and a lot of the people that have been um students of your work how much freedom there is on the other side of this gained awareness and everything that we've been talking to today so your work is very much so doing that thank you so much for the work that you're doing and for coming on today for the second time i really appreciate it and uh, here to support any way that I can. Is there any last words that you have for the audience, for anything that you want to
0: share? Um, well, you've already said it, but you know, if I may be self-serving for a moment, I, I, I just really want people to be aware of this book of mine, yeah. uh, The Myth of Normal. Uh, I, I think it. I've already been told that it's life-changing for a lot of people. Uh, it's also everything that I've worked for. Um, it took a lot to write this book. I don't say this is a complaint, I'm saying it's a reality. I went through panic. I went through moments of a few days of high blood pressure, hypertension, <laughs> all the pressure I put on myself. Yeah. Um, and in the end, it's just sort of satisfying expression of what I wanted to say to the world. And I, I, there was a patient of mine once who was a great Canadian poet. His name was Warren Tallman. and he he became after I became a doctor, he he, he became my patient. And I said to him once we'd have these conversations during his office visits and I'd say, Warren, I want to write but I don't know what. And he said, Gabor, he says, you're right when you have something to teach the world. Hmm. And so this book is an expression of that, of, of what I've learned and what I wanted to teach. So I just want people to pay attention to it. Yeah. If, you don't, if you don't want to buy it, take it out of the library. But but uh, notice it. Yeah, That's my request to the listener.
1: Beautiful. I strongly encourage that. It's, uh, it's in beautiful it's um also read by daniel mate uh, Gabor. yeah son, and i should Un-edible. really mention the
0: book was written with and yeah. narrated by my, my son daniel with whom i could not have done this work yeah and he also the narrator of the audio version yeah and um him and i do writing a new book together where actually it's not going to be gabor with daniel it's going to be daniel and gabor yeah. and it'll be called hello again a fresh start for adult children and their parents, Mm -hmm. which is a workshop that we've done. Believe me, we've had our staff to go to, my son Daniel and I. Yeah. And based on that, what we've learned, we do this workshop, and based on that workshop, we're writing this next book. So...
1: Wonderful. I'm impressed at which the scale and magnitude, which you keep going and spreading, spreading, spreading the good word. So (laughs) thank you so much. Again, everybody, the link will be in the description for the myth of normal, which is available now. Thank you all for tuning into this episode of the know thyself podcast. If something in particular resonated with you, let us know in the comment section below. We share clips on social media, have a separate clips channel. It's also linked down below. And thank you for coming on this journey with us. Until next time, be well.